This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. The digital divide continues to be a massive problem made worse by the coronavirus pandemic, but things are especially bad in Appalachia. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. CNET is once again taking a look at this problem with our series, Crossing the Broadband Divide. And the first story in the latest package takes a look at the unique problems in Appalachia, a region with some of the slowest access speeds and, accordingly, the lowest incomes in the country. With us to talk about this is CNET editor Ray Hodge. Welcome, Ray. Hey, Roger. How are you? So, to kick things off, can you give us a sense of how big the broadband gap problem is in this area? I'd love to do that. Um, If we could actually find that information out in an accurate way... um, and see, that's the that's the core problem, isn't it? The the big core problem here is that we don't have a full and complete rendering of the map of this digital divide, because for many years now, our our mapping has focused on deployment and not speed or actual access. So while we have information about what census tracts have at least one connected household in them, we don't actually know how many houses in each one of these census tracts is connected and accessing broadband, much less whether or not they're getting the speeds that we normally classify as high-speed broadband. Right. And so we are, we're looking at numbers that are probably severely undercounted. The, the latest FCC report, which came out last month, said that the number of folks who don't have access to broadband uh, went down to 14.5 million from about 18 million a year ago. Most broadband experts, I think almost all broadband experts, including the federal government and folks on the FCC, all agree universally that that number is probably dramatically low and undercounted. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of issues, as you pointed out, with the data behind these broadband maps that the FCC is in charge of. Some changes are coming, and we'll talk about that later Later. Uh, in the series, but let's let's get back to uh, your story because you take a look at the Appalachia region specifically. You grew up in Kentucky. You still live near Louisville. I'm just curious what broadband access has been like for you and your family, and how has it changed over the years? So we were based out of Eastern Kentucky. My family was, and you know we've moved, we've moved away from there. So I'm I'm what you would call the the diaspora, the Appalachian diaspora. But I didn't get uh, internet in central Kentucky until the same year we got city water run out to our, our place, somewhere around um, 1998, something like that. And even then, you know, of course, it was it was screechingly slow. Pardon the the uh, the dial up pun. But, yeah, it's been intermittent. Right. So it's taken that long to get it. And where I live now in, in Louisville, I've got one gig fiber. I pay around sixty dollars a month, which is the national average. Uh, but there are still people out in uh, the areas where I used to live in where, you know, it may cost them $100 a month to get DSL equivalent speeds. Um, it, it's insane, the disparity there. But growing up with um, this sort of slow crawl towards access, uh, it's remarkable to see what progress has been made because there is some. 
But it's incredibly frustrating to see that after decades, this is still happening. These these problems are still happening. You're still dealing with a basic lack of infrastructure and speeds that are um, nearly unusable when it comes to stuff like that. So you talked a bit about the, the map and the faulty data behind that, but what are some of the other issues that has made broadband access so hard to come by in this region? So we've got a constant narrative going on where it's always sort of presented as a problem with hilly terrain and, and we're unable to run lines or the the issue is, is oftentimes kind of bought and sold by that narrative. And that's really, that's only one, one small part of the equation, right? It's not just about hilly terrain because we've been able to make all kinds of uh, technological advancements in these areas, all kinds of construction uh, industries like the mining and coal industry have no problem navigating hilly terrain. So, you know, mountains are not necessarily the thing that is that is always stopping um, companies from running out there. A lot of the times it has to do with the fact that um, when it comes to infrastructure, it has to do with the fact that it's not as profitable for, for companies to run lines out into rural areas, right? Even though they may be uh, picking up subsidies. And there was some fraud that had gone on in different rural regions uh, by companies uh, historically who had claimed to have all these people connected and then didn't. So that's one part of it, the infrastructure politics behind that. The other part of it is that there are two digital divides, right? There's, there's one, which is I don't have the lines. I'm divided from my lines. The other one is I'm divided from the ability to pay for it which is actually the bigger digital divide across rural and urban areas. Absolutely. That has been a big problem. And I think you bring up an interesting point because when it comes to digital divide in terms of access versus cost, you know, the, the, the very simple way to paint the picture is, you know, cost is an urban problem. Access is a rural problem. But really, you make the point, a very astute point, that actually cost in particular is a problem that spans, you know, across the entire country, across different regions, whether or not you're urban or rural areas, right? Absolutely. When you've got a national average of $60 a month for basic um, broadband uh, services, it makes you think that maybe this is this is the cost of it's being blown out of proportion. But then when you look at the cost to get these lines and get these services out in rural regions like Appalachia, you see how high the average can be out there, particularly when you've got to rely on a mix of services. We've got some folks who are relying on 4G backup from their cell phone data to sort of supplement the cutouts that, that come with their overly expensive and unreliable home internet service. So you're, you're kind of nickel and diming uh, people in a lot of ways in these, in these mountainous regions. But the fact of the matter remains, uh, 70% of the digital divide uh, among those homes without high-speed broadband access, 70% of them, it's not that they don't have the lines, it's that they can't afford the service. And this is particularly a problem in poverty hit regions where income is, is low and federal subsidy, subsidies like Lifeline aren't able to fully pick up the costs. And within those programs, we're seeing a, a falling participation rate. Uh, even as other federal contributions uh, sort of eke their way through. Hey, you've talked about, you've, you mentioned the Lifeline program, and we could talk a little bit about that, but just in terms of that, that cost issue, like what are, I guess, local governments doing about this? What's the federal government doing about this? What what are some of the solutions to addressing that cost issue? So there's a couple of things that um, are really promising and fabulous in terms of municipal broadband, right? So some of these regions, like you'll see in McKee, Kentucky, or in Chattanooga, uh, or even in some parts of uh, Pennsylvania, 
you'll see municipal broadband efforts where a local area will create their own ISP at some cost. Usually it costs less than a larger one. Um, and they will roll out services that make um, internet you know, comparatively faster at more affordable prices. And this is not just, just a blanket survey. This is something that's been studied um, at least since I was able to find since 2009 when the FCC itself commissioned a Harvard study. And they found that not only does customer service speed and reliability improve, but the overall market area will see a price drop when municipal competition comes in. So that's one angle of, of seeing how we can get people uh, a more accessible, uh, more affordable internet service. And the other, of course, is, uh, you know, when we're talking about price caps and regulation there, whether or not we're going to be able to limit some of the pricing as things go on uh, in ways that we haven't seen in the last, you know, four to eight years. Yeah, I want to talk about that municipal broadband aspect in particular, because you bring up a good point. In your story, you, know, you mentioned McKee, which has some of the fastest internet in the country, but really just 90 minutes southeast is another town, Hyden, which has some of the slowest internet access. Uh, and so I guess the question is, why aren't more of these municipalities building out their own networks? What is stopping them from doing this? Well, I mean, the, the difference between, and anybody from the region will tell you that Hyden is, is very different than McKee in, you know, in a lot of ways, but when it, you know, but the point being these smaller towns and these smaller communities, right? So building out your own municipal broadband is going to be a major problem because you've got to essentially, uh, aside from the startup costs for all these things, uh, you've still got to face a, a big suite of regulatory issues. Um, we saw the battle uh, there play out uh, between ISPs and between uh, local municipal broadband. We've seen we've seen those play out in the courts, and we've seen those play out in FCC. So when we looked at like Chattanooga, right? Uh, Chattanooga's got a, a famous, famously good sort of version of municipal broadband, and they had to go to war with uh, you know political and, and legal war with you know, the FCC and with uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Ultimately, it resulted in the FCC's hands being tied if states wanted to outright ban, uh, you know, uh, municipal broadband. But in terms of restricting and regulating um, and overturning local laws, the, the FCC maintained that power. That might be a little bit in the weeds, but what it comes down to is how municipal broadband is, is changing and evolving and the role that it's playing as we go forward. And right now, the best I was able to find was that about 22 states, six or seven of which in the Appalachian region, are dealing with municipal broadband restrictions, right? Because this, this, these patchwork quilt of policies that are either roadblocking development or the, the ones that are, are sort of seeking new routes for it are still in process. You're, so you're seeing an emerging patchwork quilt of different policies around municipal broadband. The good side of this, the good side of this, I think, is that it's being considered as a part of the new Biden administration's uh, rollout of its of his proposed $20 billion reinvestment in uh, rural uh, digital divide efforts, right? So you're looking at not only the Biden administration, but you're also looking at grassroots organizations uh, and coalitions through the region that are saying, hey, it's time to invest in a very diverse and very, um, you know, very diverse portfolio of connection options and to start working with private part, private and public partnerships uh, when it comes to getting people connected, because it's not that no one has a clue how to do it. 
It's that each one of the region's uh, specific niche areas needs a different sort of uh, combination of services, right? So these, this varied portfolio is starting to emerge. That can be a great thing. That can be a messy thing. We're still in need of a national broadband plan as, as you know, pretty much everyone on, on any side of the aisle, Republican or Democrat has, has acknowledged, we are still in need of a, a unified national policy on this. But at the same time, we are seeing these things emerge. We're seeing a, a varied uh, set of voices come out and say, hey, there's a ton of solutions. It's about finding the right one for each of them. And you can look at specific places like uh, Kentucky, right? And uh, so Governor Steve Bashir, uh, uh, I'm sorry, his son, Governor Andy Bashir, who is now the governor, <laughs> uh, Bashir II, his effort to keep students online during the you know, pandemic has required him to shift around COVID-19 emergency relief funds from you know, federal dollars in order to reallocate that towards a lifeline-like subsidy program where you know uh, he's trying to make sure that ISPs are able to provide $10 a month services uh, for uh, students so that they can keep on connecting in areas where they don't have service at their house or can't afford it. Well, that's a good segue because I want to talk about the Lifeline Fund and, and how it works. For folks who aren't familiar with the program, talk a little bit about that and as well as the Universal Service Fund, which is essentially the, the piggy bank that runs the Lifeline program or funds the Lifeline program. So the Lifeline program is uh, initially it started out with just making sure that no matter what, no matter how poor you were, you could get emergency telephone services, right? And then under the Obama administration, I think everyone remembers the, the controversial, contentious Obama phone program or whatever, right? Well, that was actually about was expanding that emergency voice service guarantee where the federal government would pay the ISP to make sure you had voice. It was expanded to include data. And it was also expanded to make sure that you had a handset on your phone, right? Because a lot of times you can only get cell service and, and internet is not reliable. So expanding that to from just voice landlines to data was a huge part of making sure that more people could access this. Lifeline, it's fund, uh, it falls under, like you said, the Universal Service Fund. Now the Universal Service Fund is a big umbrella. It's got several programs out there. And one of the programs is, is the Lifeline program, which pays $10 on your bill. The other part of that pro, uh, universal service fund helps fund infrastructure development into rural areas, public schools, hospitals, prisons, things like that. It helps build the infrastructure that's needed in those areas. Now, this thing has been uh, drawing money from long distance fees that show up on your bill. You'll normally see universal service fee tacked on if you look real close in the fine print. Here's the problem. That fee percentage has kept going up and it's almost doubled in the last four years, right? So it's now at 31.8%, so it's getting higher. The revenue base that it's drawing from is getting smaller, it's shrinking. The money's drying up in there. Now the money is still out there. The money is still out there for the Universal Service Fund. We've seen um, you know, millions of dollars and billions of dollars going into different areas, trying to get, uh, congressional funds trying to get uh, it routed into these digital divide issues. But the formula itself for the Universal Service Fund has been sitting there untended uh, for a while. It first came to the intention that revenues were going to be falling soon in 2001. In 2010, it became even more evident. Right now, the political football that that policy really is sits with something in the FCC called the Universe or the uh, the uh, the Federal Joint Board, I believe. 
And it's basically its job is to come up with ideas about, hey, what are we going to do to write a new formula to make sure this funding stays consistent? It's been a big problem. We're not seeing any policy papers. And we've got people on the left and on the right accusing each other of leaving the, the can to be kicked down the road one administration after the next. But in reality, we don't have a whole lot of reports or papers coming out of that body whose, whose job it is to brainstorm this thing out, to come up with solutions. So we're still sitting here waiting. And yeah, uh, the, the FCC chairs on, on from either Democrat or Republican can accuse each other one way or another of uh, neglecting the responsibility of shoring up that fund. But I'm not seeing a whole lot of formula ideas coming out of it. Yeah, it's, a, it's obviously a big problem. And, you know, the solutions are are right now, their, their, their lack of solutions is pretty glaring. It's, it's a problem we're going to be exploring a lot more down the line. Ray, thank you for your time. You can check out our story and the rest of our Broadband Gap series on CNET.com. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or sign up for direct text messages from me by heading to CNET.co slash Daily Charge. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.